Okay, we're going to continue on with the Ten Commandments, starting with the Fourth Commandment. Honor your father and your mother. This shows the order of charity in opening the second tablet of the Ten Commandments. The first tablet is the first three commandments. The second tablet is the last seven commandments. The first commandment provides a promise. This is the first commandment that provides a promise. Honor your mother and father that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Well, that's a great quiz question. What's the first commandment that offers a promise? Well, it's the fourth. The fourth, because it, it promises that if you honor your mother and your father, it may well be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. This fourth commandment involves the family. And it introduces the subsequent commandments, which are concerned with particular respect for life, marriage, and earthly goods. The family has always been present in God's plan. This institution has a priority. The family has a priority to any civil institution. It was established by God himself. God established the family. Its persons are members with equal dignity. The family is a community of faith, hope, and charity. It's a communion of persons, a sign and image of the communion of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In the procreation and education of children, it reflects the Father's work of creation. The family is called to, to the prayer and the sacrifice of Christ. Daily prayer and the reading of God's word can strengthen it in charity and love. So the fourth commandment is really, um, is really ordering again. First, we love God, and second, we love our mother and our father. God gave us the ultimate life, but our parents cooperated with that. So they're the second in the order of charity. What are the duties of the family? Well, for children, it's to be docile and obedient to your parents. Parents are called to educate their children in the moral and spiritual life, to, to introduce children to the love of the Father, to worship. The home is the place where one learns responsibility of life. And this corresponds to civil authority. So, you know, when you're brought up in a home that respects authority, then when you go out into the world, you respect police officers, you respect um, your teachers, you respect other people that are given civil authority. But first comes God, then comes parents. The duties of the family are to become what our church calls the domestic church. That's what the family is. It's, domestic church means little church. It's the place of encounter. For folks to encounter, for children to first encounter the love of the father through their father. And so this is very important, right? Um, if you have a poor experience of your home father, your human father, then it is more difficult to have an excellent experience of God who is father. The family has um, certain roles that they're called to. Um, the first is to be open to life, to become a communion of persons. And so married couples are, are called to be open to that. Um, they're also called to teach their children social responsibility. And so that is to serve, um, to respect life, um, to know that we're all created in the image and likeness of God, and to serve the community and to serve one another. The fifth commandment says, you shall not kill. 
Now, I wrote on your slide, you shall not kill, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. So this reminds us that Jesus, you know, he expands the Ten Commandments to, again, more than just not killing someone, but also not being angry with, with your brother, not, you know, speaking against your brother. And so, so we can kill people on many different levels, right? We can kill their reputation. We can kill their spirit. Human life is sacred because it involves the creative action of God. God alone is the Lord of life from its very beginning to its natural end. No one can under any circumstance claim for himself the right directly to destroy an innocent human being. This is why we reject the idea of abortion. We reject the idea of euthanasia, physician-assisted suicide. God himself identifies the wickedness of fratricide, of Abel by his brother Cain. Fratricide is killing of your brother. God himself says, what have you done? To kill another is gravely contrary to their dignity. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount calls us to go deeper, to avoid anger, hatred, vengeance. He asks us to turn the other cheek and to love our enemies. I want you to know that there can never really be a rationale for abortion. It's unspeakable. It's an unspeakable crime against the innocent. But even in this crime, God's mercy will not be outdone. And so it's so important for people to know. I mean, gosh, the numbers for abortion are, are just huge. One out of three women has had an abortion. Many women have had what we call um, a miscarriage, but due to an abortifacia drug like the birth control pill. And this is one of the great lies of the, of the birth control pill, right? It says it prevents pregnancy, but actually sometimes it doesn't prevent fertilization of an egg. What it prevents is the implantation of that new life that has already come to be, the embryo, because it, it makes so thin um, that endometrial lining that is within a woman's um, uterus that the embryo has nowhere to plant, implant. And so we call the birth control pill an abortifacia because it does not allow implantation of the new life that has come to be. God has, has told us in the Psalms, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God has created each of us with a unique person, purpose. He has a vision for our lives and it's a beautiful vision. And so all life has that unique sacred quality and we must remember that it is so. Now, as we kind of think more deeply about what it means to not kill someone, it also recognizes a respect for the dead. So that's why, you know, we always want to bury the body. We, 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 we're, it's, it's okay to, um, it is okay um, for us to donate our bodies to science as long as that body is cared for respect, respectfully by the medical um, sciences. 
And so we must always have respect for the dead because we believe in a resurrection of the body. And so it's important for us to remember that our bodies are sacred and we'll be reunited with our bodies um, at the end of time. You shall not kill also moves forward to things like safeguarding peace and avoiding war because war involves the direct killing of other people. Now there are some reasons for just wars. Um, that is a, that the war is a last resort, that you know we're defending our life, that you know we've tried all of the different ways of you know dealing with people one on one, dip, diplomacy in particular. But war should always be a last resort. And first and foremost, we should try to safeguard peace. Why? Because the people we're fighting against, even if they're very different looking from ourselves, maybe come from a different culture, they are human persons. As I mentioned, euthanasia, the taking of someone's life, mistakenly identified as mercy killing. You know, euthanasia is not merciful. It's actually robbing people of their ability to possibly come to a deeper relationship with God, maybe discovering God for the first time. Euthanasia says we're not willing to suffer alongside the, our loved ones who are suffering, that we, we actually choose to eliminate the one who suffers instead of their suffering. And that's what we need to do. We need to try to eliminate someone's suffering through proper use of medications, spending time with them, letting them know that their life is, is worth our time, worth our assistance to them. Many times people choose euthanasia because they think they're a burden. This life is really meant for us to be sanctified through our suffering. And so we don't want people to unnecessarily suffer, but we can actually benefit from suffering, right? It reminds us that we're not in control. We're not in charge, that God is the author of life and we need him to live it and even to suffer well. Suicide is also a very serious, um, serious sin. Um, I think we have to qualify that always because I think most people who commit suicide are not right in their mind. And so in order to commit a serious sin, you have to know what you're doing. And I think oftentimes suicide victims are out of their mind with grief, with worry, with anxiety, with, with so many different, you know, maladies. And so we, all, we, all, we often have to really know that God is merciful, that he knows the heart of the person that has made this choice, if it is in fact a choice, and that we just defer to God's mercy and we just pray for that person um, but suicide is a serious sin if it's entered into with full knowledge with full you know sanity um, but many times people commit suicide because they're depressed and so again they're not thinking with their full capacity which does limit their culpability and so that's why we have to be attuned to people who suffer people who are depressed and we need to walk alongside them. We need to assist them in any way that we can. Scientific research is a good thing, but again, we always have to make sure that um, person's dignity are being um, respected. 
and that they have informed consent about what they are saying yes to in terms of research. And again, if bodies are donated to science, that they are, um, you know, do donated with this, this same reverence um, for the human body that, um, that we call them to. So those are all different dimensions of the fifth commandment, you shall not kill. Um, it's so important for us to recognize that what, what underlies this commandment is the dignity of the human person made in the image and likeness of God. Okay. The sixth commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Again, I'm going to read to you the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus kind of calls us to something more than cheating on our wives, right? But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery. God is love, and in himself he lives a mystery of personal loving communion. Creating the human race in his own image God inscribed in the humanity of man and woman the vocation and thus the capacity and responsibility of love and communion. So we're made in his image and likeness. We're called to love the way that God loves. And we've talked about this before, right? We've talked about the fact that when you truly love, when you authentically love, then you're giving yourself freely. You're giving yourself totally. You're giving yourself faithfully and you're giving yourself fruitfully. So those are the four dimensions of authentic love that need to be present in a loving relationship such as marriage. He created man and woman in his own image. Male and female he created them. He blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Sexuality affects all aspects of the human person in the unity of body and soul. And the union of man and woman in marriage is a way of imitating in the flesh the creator's generosity and fecundity, its fruitfulness. All human generations proceed from this union. And, and so the sexual union is not something that the Catholic Church looks down upon. The Catholic Church actually holds it in such high esteem that it's for marriage only, because it's only in marriage that you can truly give yourself in totality, that you can give yourself freely, that you can be faithful to the end, and that you promise before God and the community, till death do us part, and to be open to new life. All of those things are critical for authentic love. And that kind of love can only be lived out in a vowed relationship, and where I've said, I promise to be with you forever. And when you, when, you pro make you, when you make that promise to another person, it makes you more free to give of yourself because you know this person is willing to go the distance with you in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad. You're open to new life because it's only in marriage that a child's existence can flourish. A child needs a mother and a father in order to become everything that they're called to be. You shall not commit adultery, but anyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So ladies and gentlemen, we need to 
live chastity. Chastity is when we see the other person as a gift. We have the capacity to master our passions. So we're not animals, right? In the sense that we can't control our, our desires. You know, if we couldn't control our desires, then, then we're really just an animal that doesn't have a rational mind. If you can't possess yourself, you can't give yourself. So if you can't control what you say, what you eat, what you drink, what you do, then how can you ever become a gift to another? And so the deal is this, if we can't control our passions, our passions will control us. So one either governs their passions and is at peace or is dominated by, by them and becomes unhappy. And so we're called to permeate the passions and the appetites with reason. And this takes a long time, right? This is why that education and freedom that we've talked about is so important, right? That we have this discipline of life, that we have this growth in virtue so that we can master ourselves. And in our young adulthood and adulthood, when we enter into a vocation, <clears throat> excuse me, such as marriage, now we can possess ourselves and we can give ourselves. All of those things are undergirded, undergirded with charity. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> so how do we guard against lust? Well, we guard against lust by becoming chaste. And chaste does not mean abstinence from sex. It means that we're, we're faithful to our vocation. So if right now you're a single person, then living out a sexual life in terms of genital relations is inappropriate because as a single person, you can't give yourself in totality because you haven't given your I do. You haven't given your forever. You probably aren't open to life. So how can you give of everything that you are if you're holding back your fertility? And so it is only in marriage that we can live out completely that fullness of the sexual gift. Now, some persons are never called to live that out fully. Our priests vow chastity, right? Chastity in a different way, in, in a way of abstinence. And so um, the vocation to holy orders, the vocation in a single life is to be chased in a different way. And so it's not that you're not a sexual being. We're always sexual beings. We always are living out our reality as woman or man, right? There's nothing that I don't do that I don't do as a woman. But there are different ways in which I live that femininity out. I think sometimes in our culture, we confuse intimacy with sex. And I can have lots of sex and have no intimacy but I can have lots of intimacy and not have sex. And so we often confuse love with sex. And it's actually very possible to love without entering into genital relationships. And so not committing adultery includes you know, other ways of living out or not living out our call to love. On page 17 or slide 17, you'll see offenses against chastity. This is actually an offense against the sixth commandment. 
because lust is a disordered desire for the enjoyment of sexual pleasure. All of these practices, masturbation, fornication, pornography, prostitution, rape, all of these practices objectify the person. The end of each is pleasure only, self-satisfaction, a selfishness which ends with self, no capacity to be a gift in any of them. Fornication, by the way, is sex outside of marriage for a single person. So a fornicator is someone who has sex with people before they're married. Um, premarital sex would be another way to put this. Each of these practices in their own way enslaves us to a selfishness which points to self. There's no movement outside of self. There's no life-giving love. Same-sex relationship is a difficult issue today. Homosexuality is a difficult issue today. The church is very clear that the person with same-sex attraction is holy, sacred, in his or her very own creation. They are a great good, just as any human person is. They too are called to be obedient in faith to be chaste. And acting out of same-sex attraction offends what is given in creation. There is no complementarity. There's no fruitfulness. There's no life-giving love in same-sex union. It is disordered in that it goes against the natural order. But it is the act and not the person which is disordered or denounced. I often utilize the example of myself when I'm assisting someone with same-sex attraction to understand the teaching of the church. I'm a single woman with desires, with attractions to the opposite sex. As a single woman, however, I'm called to giving love, which is life-giving. Expressing myself sexually as a single woman can never give life, not in the way life-giving love is intended. First of all, it reduces me. I can't give myself totally as I'm meant to. That can only happen in a vowed relationship. Otherwise, my love, my gift is limited. I'm not in a relationship which is responsibly open to children. So I'm unable to give all that I am to the other person, my capacity for motherhood. I may contracept in order to prevent this from occurring, again, validating my capacity, my potential to give all that I am. I incapacitate God's life-giving powers in my relationship. This also reduces the other. They are not seen in their totality, only as a source of pleasure, not responsible love. They become an object rather than a subject to share my life with. And so just as I'm called to be chaste, so too is a, a, a man or a woman with same-sex attraction. When you can't enter into a free, total, faithful, fruitful sexual relationship with someone in a marriage, then it shouldn't be entered into at all. And so we're all called to chastity, but what we need to recognize is that that way of living out our sexuality is different based on the vocation that we are in. So sexuality between man and wife, man and woman in marriage is really 
a sign of, of the pledge that they make, that they say to one another on their wedding day. The gift of self is, is never just biological, and that, that's really important for us to, to know. I think sometimes it's easy for us to see that having sex only to have a child to procreate is disordered. So like if I just want to have sex to have a baby, I don't really love you, that's disordered. That's without love. It's an objectification of the act, right? So, so if we switch that around, it should help us to see that union without life without being open to life is just as fragmented. The truth of the conjugal embrace is that it's both. It's both about union and it's about life. Without the love, there is no life. Without the life-giving dim dimension, love is partial, a reduction of what marital love is called to. And so this is why contraception is problematic, right? Because it's only about union, it's not about the whole meaning of the sexual act, which is both life and love. This is why IVF is wrong, because IVF separates the act of the husband and the wife from procreation. Procreation for IVF happens in a Petri dish. IVF is a life issue, right? It's, it's a life issue, it's a, it's a sexuality issue. Now, I think it's important for folks to understand that, you know, every time a husband and wife engage in, in sexual, the sexual embrace, it's not always possible to have a child, right? So a woman and a man are not fertile every single day of the month. Now, a man always has the capacity to give life through his sperm, but a woman doesn't always have the capacity to receive life because she's not always ovulating. And this is really important for us to understand. God gave us actually within our own body the capacity to determine whether or not we would like to have a baby or we want to avoid having a baby. And that's the cycle of the woman because there's only about four to six days in every woman's cycle in which she can actually achieve a pregnancy. And for a woman and a man to learn that cycle actually assists them in planning their families responsibly. Now, this way of planning your family responsibly takes virtue because on those four to six days, if it's not good for you to have a baby, then you need to abstain from having sex, which takes virtue, which takes sacrifice, which is what authentic love calls people to. And so natural family planning is knowing the body and cycle of the woman so a couple can choose when they're lovingly ready to accept a child. Because we talked about the fact that love is to will the good of the other. And would it be good for you to get pregnant when you're really super tired, you've got two little ones under three, you know, we're struggling with our finances, it makes us fight more? Well, no, it's probably would not be a loving thing to you know, possibly have an unplanned pregnancy. And so if we know that these days are fertile, then we're gonna not have sex because that's the loving thing to do. Now it's not wrong to not have sex on certain days. That's not a sin. 
to abstain from sexuality for a husband and a wife. In fact, it's, it sometimes can be a, an act of love. It can also improve the quality of the sexual gift the next time the couple engages in the sexual gift. That is really a gift. Natural family planning helps couples to communicate better. Now, this is not why the church teaches that natural family planning is the way that couples should use to plan their families, but it does. It causes couples to talk more about the important things in their lives, like why aren't we having a baby? Well, we're not having a baby because you never help with the kids. You never help with the house cleaning. You never help with this. Oh, well, I can help more with that. I can, I can, I can do that. So the couple's talking about why they're avoiding a pregnancy or why they want to achieve a pregnancy. You know, so oftentimes, I'm a fertility care practitioner, so oftentimes couples will come to me when they're 38 and they've never talked about having a child. They've been so focused on their careers or education and now they're 38 and they, they're having trouble getting pregnant. And it's so important for us to educate our, our, our couples that, you know, fertility just as a biological fact begins to diminish when you're about 26 years of age, particularly for the woman. And so you really should make an informed decision about whether or not you want to wait till you're 38 to have a baby to see what your fertility looks like. Is my fertility in a place where I, I have the capacity to wait a couple of years? That's, that's making an informed decision. I know a lot of times folks really struggle with this idea about IVF being immoral. Um, but it is a life issue. IVF is a life issue. In vitro fertilization seems like a solution to the problem of infertility for many couples. But the problem is this. IVF doesn't work as well as the natural way. This makes sense, right? You're basically putting a sperm and an egg together in a Petri dish. You're artificially causing, you know, this gift of life to come about in an artificial way, right? And so often, sometimes there can actually be an injection of the sperm into the egg. So it's a very different process than a, a one, husband and a wife coming together in the act of love. It's, it's almost an act of violence in a sense, to, particularly if you're the egg, right? Um, there's also this idea in in vitro fertilization that the child is a right, that the child is my right. And in a way, it objectifies the child. The child becomes a commodity, a product, something to manufacture instead of a gift, which is what every life is. Every life is a gift. And so in vitro fertilization reduces, it objectifies what a human person is. Nobody has a right to a child. The desire for a child is a good desire. But the only right that a married couple has is to come together in the marital embrace to enjoy that beautiful gift of sexuality and then God blesses them with a child. Now, there is another way for couples that struggle with infertility. Um, there is there is a process called NAPRO technology, which has actually flowed from a particular model, the Creighton model system of fertility, which I teach, which has identified causal 
causality for infertility. Just by charting, we can tell by the hundreds of patterns of charts that we've received over time, we know what's the norm, right? And so when something fluctuates away from the norm in a person's chart, we identify problems, infertility, in cycles, in being able to maintain a pregnancy. And through those identifications of abnormalities, we've actually identified <clears throat> solutions to those problems. NAPRO technology is three times more effective in helping couples to achieve and have a live birth. The natural way, by restoring a woman's health. And so in vitro fertilization is a life issue because it creates more embryos than are ever used. We've got millions of frozen embryos in this country. This is an ethical dilemma. Those are persons. What do we do with those persons? They're frozen. What, what's the solution? 80% of embryos that are implanted succumb and die. A child has the right to come to be in their, their mother's womb. They have a right to know who their mother and their father is. In vitro fertilization goes against all of those dimensions. Now we've been talking about the dignity of marriage. And so it's, it's also important for us in this fifth commandment to recognize that there are offenses against the dignity of marriage. There's divorce, there's incest, there's free union or cohabitation. And so it's important for us to to recognize um, that these two are offenses against this, the sixth commandment. Just as contraception separates what God has given in creation, so too does divorce. We're made for lifelong loving relationships. The sacrament of marriage assists us in making this a reality in our lives. Divorce causes devastation on the persons involved the children, the extended family, society, as well as the fragmentation of the community suffers. When marriage is unified, when marriage is holy, so is the family holy, so is the culture holy. We must commit to holy marriages. Incest comp comp compromises the very dignity and trust of the human person. It's a sexual relationship between relatives, which always is always a great evil perpetuated upon the weaker by the strong. It is never for the good of the other, but only related to the pursuit of pleasure and power of one. It causes a wound upon the victim and the perpetrator, which is difficult to overcome. It's a great tragedy for all involved. Cohabitation, living together prior to marriage. This is also um, an offense against the dignity of marriage. It really is saying to the other person, I'm not really willing to go the distance with you. So it really does not appreciate the dignity of the other person who really has the right to someone committing to them, committing to them for life, to be faithful in good times and health, not to test me out, right? Cohabitation actually increases the chance for divorce later. And the practice produces many other negative effects. Cohabitating persons report higher levels of alcohol problems than married people. Aggression is twice as common among cohabitants. 
there is greater marital instability if people go to marriage and lower marital satisfaction and poor communication during marriage following cohabitation. Depression rates among cohabiting couples are over three times the depression rates among married couples. Cohabitants report more frequent disagreements, more fights, more violence, and lower levels of fairness in and happiness with their relationships than do married people. The effects of cohabiting on children is also very detrimental. Children living with biological parents who are unmarried are 20 times more likely to be abused. And children whose mother is living with a boyfriend, 33 times more likely to be abused. The poverty rate in 1996 for children living in cohabiting households was 31% as compared with 6% of children in married couples households. Children living in cohabiting households have more behavioral problems and poor academic scores than children in married households. Those are just some of the things that really show us that cohabitation is not the key to a successful marriage. It's not preparation for marriage. It's actually preparation for divorce. The seventh commandment is you shall not steal. Now this commandment does not negate the right to private property. This is actually, private property is, is a great good. It's a provision for peace. It gives persons hope that they too could have a home, that they too could have a car. And so the goods of creation are destined for the whole human race. But it doesn't negate that respect and love for the poor. Remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich young man. I'm sorry, Lazarus and the rich man, not the rich young man. I'm used to our parable we talked about earlier. So Lazarus was that, that poor man that we see in the arms of Abraham in heaven. And he is being taken care of by Abraham in heaven. But during his life, he was poor, homeless, had sores all over his body. And he lounged outside of the rich man's house. And the rich man didn't even spare scraps for Lazarus to eat. And, and so in heaven, this, this rich man who enjoyed a wealthy life is across the abyss from Lazarus who's in the arms of Abraham. And he's sweltering in the flames that surround him. And he begs for Abraham to have Lazarus come give him a drink. And Abraham says, there is no way for Lazarus to get to you from here. Lazarus did without during his lifetime. So now he will enjoy the goods of heaven. But you did not share what you had during your lifetime. And so you will live out your eternity in unquenchable fires. And so remember, when we enjoy prosperity and good, we, we have to have a sense of those who don't have what we have. And so once we have what we need, we need to make provision for those who have less. And so care for the poor is not something that we choose. It's, it's an obligation for the Christian. And so we must share. 
We must give generously. We must have respect for persons and their goods. And so profit can never be the exclusive norm and the ultimate end of economic activity. We can never subordinate the rights of man to a collective organization of production. We have to reject totalitarian and atheistic ideologies associated with communism and socialism because they, they deny the uniqueness and the goodness of the human person in deference to the state, right? They say the state's the most important thing and we say no, the individual is the most important thing. But we also reject capitalism as an absolute primacy of the law over human labor. So, so we can't just succumb to greed, right? And so capitalism, um, pure capitalism that just negates, again, the generous spirit of the human person also must be refused, as too should communism and socialism both negate the dignity of the person. And so the idea is social justice, and social justice has a really bad name these days, but social justice really focuses on the flourishing of the human person the dignity of the human person, that we need to give persons their due. We need to be just to other persons. So persons deserve liberty and life and, and um, you know, the basic necessities of life, food and shelter, hospital care. Um, and so we have to give others their due. If they're a human person, they have dignity, they're made in the image and likeness of God, and we have to do all that we can to provide for them. Now that doesn't mean that you know we get walked all over, right? It means we provide for those who can't provide for themselves. There will always be the poor among us. There will always be those that are that are unable to care for themselves, and we must help to provide for them. I think that one of the things that all of us can work on is this idea of temperance, this great virtue in which we, we enjoy things of the world, we enjoy created goods, but we're detached from them. You know, we're not, we're not born down. And we talked about this when we talked that blessed are the poor in spirit, right? The beatitude, that we enjoy good things, but we're not going to die if, if we lose them tomorrow. If our car gets stolen, if our house burns down, like we're, there'll be another house, there'll be another car. But the most important thing is the human person. You know, I did something silly last night, and I, I and it's certainly not bragging. I'm, I, I'm not really bragging at all. I'm just, I'm just showing you that I think everything that we do, we need to be thinking about others. I, one of my favorite stores is Costco, and Costco, of course, causes all of us to be just all about material possessions because it has everything in Costco and so it was a Friday and so I thought I can't eat meat tonight so I should just get myself a pizza I've never had Costco's pizza well Costco's pizza is really good that's what I have to tell you so it was a Friday in Lent and so I bought myself a, a Costco pizza which is huge by the way and I just got a cheese pizza because no meat and I took it home and I had two slices and I had about 12 slices left right I mean it's huge their pies are huge so I put three slices in the fridge for me to have next week. And then I packaged up the rest and I went into my car and I went to the site where I know there's homeless persons there. And, and, um, and I found a man that looked very hungry and disheveled. And I asked him if he would eat the food. I, I said, I have a freshly baked pizza pie for you. Will you eat this? And he said, oh my gosh, yes, thank you so much. And so I, I provided to someone their dinner last night. Um, wasn't the healthiest, but I know that he enjoyed it. Um, and so, so 
you know, that's what we must do. We must think of the, like, I didn't need to have 12 pieces of pizza in my freezer, right? I could have done that, but three was plenty for me to, you know, overindulge later and get later next week and then share my abundance with someone, someone else. So when I say you shall not steal, and I'm talking about generosity, this is what the lively virtue for greed is, right? Generosity of life. And so when you have enough, your abundance should be made available to others. And whether that, that abundance is your talent, is your, your money, your time, what are you abundant in right now that you can share? To not give that is to steal because we're meant to become a gift. That's what it means to follow the seventh commandment. The eighth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Now, this is really important, right? Because we're called to live in the truth. Christ, God is the source of all truth. His word is truth. His law is truth. Since God is true, the members of his people are called to live in this truth. The knowledge of the truth will set us free. We must bear witness to this truth. And to bear witness to this truth is to assure ourselves of undergoing persecution, right? Blessed are they who are persecuted in my name, right? That's what Jesus did. We're called to the same. And when we, when we bear, to the, bear, bear witness to the truth, we will be persecuted for it. When you stand up against abortion, you will be persecuted for it. When you stand against contraception, you will be persecuted for it. When you tell your friends, you shouldn't be sleeping with that guy outside of marriage, you will be made fun of. But everyone is obligated to share the truth, and this is the truth. These are the truths. Christ has made this truth manifest in his very person. He is full of grace and truth, says John 1. So what are the offenses against the truth? Well, false witness is basically when we, we gossip about someone, we tell a lie about someone, we perjure ourselves, we say, I swear to God, this is true, I didn't do that, I swear to God. When we boast, when we over-accentuate something that we've done, that's an offense against truth. Certainly when we lie. Every offense against justice and truth requires reparation. And so, how do we do that? Well, we, we can repair these things about, uh, by apologizing, by trying to refute the falsehood we've put forth, the lie that we've told. We can go to confession. And then we can ask for God's grace to never do it again. And so don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie. Always build people up. If someone invites you into gossip, turn away or say something good about that person instead of something negative. The ninth commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, or anything that is your neighbor's. So this really is about concupiscence. This, this ninth commandment is about concupiscence. And we've talked about concupiscence, right? Concupiscence is that inclination to sin, that tinder of sin. And St. John talks about this concupiscence of the flesh, the eyes, and pride of life. And so this, is, this re refers to our intense human desires, the passions. 
a rebellion of the flesh against the spirit. And this struggle, St. Paul tells us, belongs to the inheritance of sin. And so this ninth commandment, this covetousness, this concupiscence of the eyes, materialism, flesh, the passions, pride of life, my heart, all of these things call us to purity, chastity, sexual rectitude, love of truth, orthodoxy of faith. When we're pure in heart, we will see God. And so purity of heart means to sin less, to avoid the near occasion of sin. When we sin yet less, we're able to love more. This battle for purity begins in baptism. That's the entryway. It provides for us a fountain of grace. But then we have a continued task. And that continued task for the baptized is to grow in virtue, to grow in love of God, self, and neighbor. God's grace will give us the power to prevail. His life, remember, God's grace. Grace is God's life in us. It gives us power. We should try to have a purity of intention to seek God's will in all things. Whenever you're going out on your day, it's such a great idea to just say a prayer, Lord, help me to do your will. He will. Ask him to help you to do his will. He will help you to do that. He will give you a purity of vision. You will see things differently if you ask for his help. And so prayer assists you in this. And then lastly, you know, help other people to not have this desire for, for things of the flesh, for things of material, materialism. Be modest. Be modest in how you dress. Don't lure people's eyes towards you. You can be beautiful and not cause people to lust. There's beautiful ways of dressing, which really assist us to be pure of heart. We should be modest in our purchases, in a lack of flamboyance in certain things that could cause others to envy. And then we help ourselves by not becoming so attached to the superficiality of the culture. And so it really is up to us to help to purify the social climate. And then the 10th commandment is really kind of an, uh, a reiteration of, of what the ninth commandment is all about. You shall not covet anything that is your nature's, your neighbor's. So the ninth commandment focuses more on the passions in terms of lust. The 10th commandment is more about stuff, okay? And so it says um, purity of heart and intention is what will allow us to see God. And so we want to be pure of heart. And when we're not attached to things of the world, we will be pure of heart. Remember, where your treasure is, that is where your heart will be. What, what do you treasure? What's the most important thing in your life? That's where your heart is. And so the 10th commandment unfolds and completes the ninth. Unwarranted desires which demand satisfaction to eat, to drink, to exceed the limits of reason, to covet what is not ours unjustly. Tenth commandment's about envy. Envy is a mortal sin. It's when we get sad that someone else has succeeded. So again, 
How do we not be envious? Well, admire. Instead of envying someone's success, admire it. Try to become like it. Become detached. Remember, consolation in material goods is very short-lived. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Remember, ladies and gentlemen, virtues undergird all the commandments. If we are virtuous, if we have temperance, if we have prudence, if we have justice, if we have fortitude, those virtues undergird all of the commandments. And in fact, my next presentation, the seven deadly sins and the seven lively virtues, will cover those. Um, and so we'll talk about those virtues and how we unpack them. But just to, to end our, our, our presentation on the Ten Commandments, I just want to give you an, a short definition for each of the virtues. First of all, faith, hope, and love we've talked about are the theological virtues. So those are the virtues whose origin, source, and object are God. They're a gift. The cardinal virtues are temperance, which is um, being able to moderate our desires, temperance. Prudence is right reason in action. Justice is giving others their due. And fortitude is being able, strong enough, to choose the good. Temperance, moderation of our passions. Prudence, right reason in action. Justice, giving others their due. Fortitude, having the strength to do what is just. So fortitude is all about choosing the good. Thank you all. Have a great evening, and I'll talk to you on Monday night.